Welcome to the European Space Agency's ESA Explores podcast. You're listening to our Time and Space series. In this series, we're exploring the history of Europeans in orbit with the astronauts and experts who helped shape it. I'm Ali Kohler, co-hosting with Stephen Ennis, and this podcast is Go for Launch. This. Nie. Ato. Seven. Seis. Fünf. Stere. Drei. Dwa. One. Last episode, we spoke to Ellen Thurkettel, one of the first ESA engineers to work on Space Lab, the European-built modular science laboratory that flew inside NASA's space shuttle and paved the way for the science and research that we see on the International Space Station today. But it wasn't just European-built equipment that flew on NASA's ninth space shuttle flight in 1983. ESA astronaut Ulf Meerbold was also on board becoming the first non-U.S. citizen to fly on a U.S. space mission. In fact, anyone looking into Ulf's background will find a lot of firsts. He was not only the first ESA astronaut and first European to fly on a NASA spacecraft, but he was also the first West German in space. Now 79 years old, we caught up with Ulf to ask what life was like as a pioneering space traveller and just how his astronaut career first took flight. I studied physics, and after I finished the study, I worked in one of the German Max Planck Institute as a solid-state physicist doing experimental research work. After 10 years, I was about in the midst of my 30s, and I thought it would be a good moment either to take a decision to continue or to open a new area of research. And it so happened that at that point in time, DLR or DFVLR, as it was called, on behalf of ESA, at an ad into the weekend, the newspapers in Germany, opening the door for scientists to become scientist astronauts and fly on the first space lab mission. I thought, okay, that's an interesting offer. And there was also a list of scientific disciplines that would be involved like human physiology and astrophysics. And I'm a curious person. So I thought that seems to be very interesting. I applied and it took a little more than a year until ESA selected Wubo Ockels, Claude Nicolier and myself to start the training. Said like that, it sounds fairly straightforward. But in fact, Ulf was one of around 2,000 hopefuls to apply. Each ESA member state had the opportunity to present up to five candidates for selection. ESA also presented five of its own. And in the words of Ulf himself... And uh, it went on and on and on. We had to do language tests and, of course, we were interviewed and people looked into our scientific merits. We had to go through all kinds of medical examinations and psychology played an important role. In fact, it was the most difficult hurdle to pass. The psychologists, they kicked um, about 70% of the people who started the screening and only 30% passed. We mentioned earlier Ulf was the first West German citizen to fly to space. But his life actually started in the East, just 40 kilometers from the birthplace of the first German to fly to space, the late Sigmund Jan. Like many others before the construction of the Berlin Wall, Ulf defected to West Germany, 
It was a difficult decision for a young man who had just finished school in 1960, in a very different Germany to the one we know today. We asked, did you know Sigmund at all ahead of your own flight? No, I, no. I didn't know him. His life and my life is totally different. Uh, he ended up as a fighter pilot in the East German Air Force, and I think that indicates already that he was definitely the supporter of the Socialist Party and the political system of East Germany, whereas I fled East Germany when I was 19 years old because I was not admitted to study physics at uh, Jena University, so I was put in a very, very difficult, critical situation in my life. It was clear to me in if I would have, um, in a way, sent signs and indications that I would be more or less in line with uh, East German politics, maybe they would have allowed me to um, study physics. But um, the Russians killed my father in the concentration camp, and it was out of my world to um, uh, even conceive to, in a way, accept the East German political system. Consequently, uh, they stopped my let's say, education. It took me a couple of months to, at the end, come to the decision to go from east to west, which is not easy when you are 19 years old, because I didn't know whether I would ever be able to return. See my grandparents, my mother, and uh, my friends, and all these uh, people who are important for a young human being. I went through an academic education in Stuttgart, as, you, as I told you already. And we started after the selection uh, to start the training, 1st of July in 78, and end of August 78, Sigmund Yen flew. And that was the first time that I even heard his name and learned that an East German fighter pilot uh, is in orbit. We met Sigmund and I for the first time in 85. That was after his flight, years after his flight. And one year after my flight, or almost a little more than a year after my flight, it was the, the 90th birthday of famous Hermann Obert, who was one of the uh, theoreticians so, who worked out all, all the mathematics for spaceflight. And when he turned 90, Siegmund and I uh, were um, invited to receive what is called the Hermann Obert Medallion. And that took place in Salzburg in Austria, not in West Germany, nor in East Germany. And that was the day when we physically looked in our eyes, so to say. Wow, incredible. So a completely different worlds. And I was going to ask you actually about what it was like training, because then you were the first non-US citizen to fly on space shuttles. So you were training with five Americans or five NASA astronauts. Um, and I was going to ask you if that was any kind of culture shock there or how you found that. Well, it is a long story. It was all that within the U.S. cadre, these who were named payload specialists. They were NASA-employed astronauts who started the training. It was Byron Lichtenberg and Mike Lampton. And we, the Europeans, Claude Wubo and my sort payload specialists, in Ulf's words, the professional astronauts in Houston were not particularly excited that all of a sudden people from outside NASA, from the scientific community, came and wanted to go into orbit. But the role of payload specialist was quite a job, 
as explained in this archival clip. Dr. Ulf Meerbold of the Max Planck Institute in Stuttgart, Germany, and Dr. Byron Lichtenberg of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology were chosen as flight payload specialists. Dr. Wubo Ockels of the University of Groningen in the Netherlands and Dr. Michael Lampton of the University of California at Berkeley are alternates. These payload specialists have learned the background, objectives, and procedures for each experiment. They have become personally acquainted with each principal investigator. They have become each scientist's representative in orbit. Mission One also has two scientists astronauts for NASA, Dr. Owen Garriott and Dr. Robert Parker. They are called mission specialists and are responsible for operating the systems of the laboratory itself and for coordination with shuttle pilots John Young and Brewster Shaw. They trained as much as possible with the payload specialists and would spend much of their time conducting experiments with them. When we got into this NASA system, we were not always uh, welcome, warm-hearted. Once after these many years in training, uh, you end up in situations that uh, your flight is delayed or whatever. You get to the hotel, then your rooms are sold to other people. So I slept with Popaka a couple of times in the same bed and pre-flight. And then in orbit, it's anyway all that small that you there's no way to get away from each other. Uh, I have no brothers, no sisters, but my brothers uh, are actually those guys with whom I trained and flew. And I was going to ask you, I mean, yes, this was the first mission of Space Lab, so it was the big showcase, as you say. It was, you know, having to get, come to terms with 72 experiments and knowing that you are the eyes and ears and hands of all these scientists who this is, you know, their life's work, perhaps. Did you feel a sense of pressure or how did you deal with that? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we all did. Not only me, because behind was the, the real wish or the, let's say the intention to de demonstrate the rest of the world that European built systems like Spacelab are also top quality. And But nevertheless, I mean, all the others, they were also in a way made responsible to optimize the scientific outcome of this flight. Spacelab as a scientific platform performed so well, it is very comfortable as regards uh, the quality of life support. Uh, that means noise, illumination, the quality of air, and also the, uh, the support provided to the various scientific instruments. Based on this work of ESA, NASA used Spacelab more than 20 times, and uh, it always, as far as I know, worked flawlessly. Spacelab 1 was not only the premier of Europe in terms of space hardware for manned missions, it was also the first flight where the crew worked in shifts. It had, had not been done previously in NASA. So we had the red team and the blue team, and everyone uh, was uh, up on duty for about 12 hours plus, and we had the handover. And the others came, and uh, then we could uh, go back from Spacelab to the uh, shuttle mid-deck. That was our living quarter. That's where we slept and where we ate. Oh, and we could relax a little bit. Uh, of course, 
the eight hours that were scheduled for night sleep, I abused and I spent at least three out of these eight hours every night going up to the flight deck to the cockpit area where the shuttle had windows all around and I would watch the world for two revolutions. After our 12 hours rest period, we had to go back to Space Lab and continue the work. So it was 24 hours around the clock scientific program. And the whole thing was really optimized in terms of best utilization of time and other resources. In space, um, every minute is very precious and you press on. And in spite of all the pressure, you have to be extremely disciplined to stick to the pre-planned mark. That's absolutely right. Crew time is one of the most precious resources in any space mission. And even today on the International Space Station, where we're dealing with longer duration missions, it is heavily scheduled. Now retired from her role at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, Teresa Van Hooser led some of those missions. In this clip from NASA, she talks NASA Public Affairs Officer Lori Meggs through that scheduling and just how science operated during those Space Lab missions. You can find a link to the full clip and any of the additional content we've used today in the show notes of this episode. So we took advantage of every minute for the of crew time that we had to actually conduct the science, that we were able to accomplish everything we need to accomplish during the mission. How were the missions carried out here? I know we're standing next to the room where it all happened. Uh, how do we do business then, and, and how has technology progressed today? Well, see, in, in, during the Space Lab days, we actually had all the scientists come here during the mission. And so we had a, a room for them where they actually could look at, could interact with our teams and, were actually, and could collect their science data. And so today, we've actually, technology has gotten us to a place where they can actually be at their home facilities and we can ship their science to them. They can even talk to the crew from their facilities. And so it's really come a long way. And so we were able to actually make that transition towards the end of Space Lab. And so, so we had a good practice ground for it. And you bring up a good point. It really was our first opportunity to work with international partners. What was that like? Oh, it was great. Sometimes I would go after I would, uh, during the mission, I would go down to the science operations area. And, and each of the teams had their own, you know, they were working together and were talking their own language there. And then, of course, they all spoke very good English. So when they interacted with us, it was, um, they spoke English. But to go and just kind of hear their teams talking and then talking about the science they were able to get, uh, it was pretty phenomenal. So for me, it was a great experience to get to work with all the different international teams. And so with all these simulations and all, all this preparation, was there anything that did surprise you when you were in orbit? We had shortcuts, computer crashes, leak problems, and there was always something uh, that was not really uh, in line with the textbook. How about from a personal point of view, when you got to orbit, how was that experience versus what you were expecting, do you recall? The launch, that is something you cannot experience on the ground. I mean, the, the, the shuttle with all the engines, the solid rocket boosters and the three main engines uh, working on liquidogen and hydrogen has in rough numbers, 3,000 metric tons of thrust. What happens, I mean, there's no language, not even in German, I would to explain it to you. This lasts only for eight and a half minutes and you end up 250 kilometers above Earth 
with a speed of 27,000 kilometers per hour. The most sustainable experience or the what matters the most is actually when you have the time to go to the window and you see our home planet from this distance. And it is breathtaking to notice how beautiful is it, but also how fragile it appears. And I'm still not over it. It is very obvious if it takes only 90 minutes for one revolution that our home planet is a small planet. And you see all this beauty, but you don't see the borderlines that are so prominently made on the maps. In orbit, it becomes very, very obvious that, okay, it is not a good idea to use, uh, let's say, force in order to solve problems. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's incomprehensible. Seeing photos is amazing, but I can't imagine experiencing it yourself would have been incredible. So you flew, then again, you flew another shuttle mission and you also flew on Soyuz to Mir. Were things different between the Mir flight or the Soyuz, the Russian flight and the American flights in terms of your preparation and experience? Yes, of course it was different. I mean, Space Lab, in terms of its power as a scientific platform was by far superior as compared to the Mir station. We had much more computing power, much wider bandwidth to transmit data to the ground. In this respect, my flight to Mir, which was the last one who came after the space missions, was from a scientific point of view, less interesting. Mm. On the other side, at that point in time, the Russians were the only ones, or the Soviet Union, in fact, it was already Russia, who operated the space station. And from that end, it was really very interesting to go to Russia and see how they do it and turn it. Because once you have a space station with people up in orbit, as we have now on ISS, you have to have a very robust logistics. You must be able to provide oxygen, drinking water, underwear, spare parts, fuel in a reliable manner. Otherwise, those people in orbit uh, would starve. NASA was really not in a position to um, do that. Space Lab could fly in orbit as long as the shuttle was capable to stay up. The Russians, they with their uh, near station, they had solar power and they could continue. And of course, also from a hardware point of view, the shuttle, as compared to the very, very small Soyuz capsule, was very comfortable. But on the other side, it's much simpler. And I think it is also quite an interesting lesson that the Americans, they put their museum, their shuttles in the museums, obviously because they were not really robust and reliable and perhaps also very expensive. In this respect, I think it was very, very interesting to spend a year and a half in Russia and fly for a little more than a month together with Russians to the Mir station. NASA, as I said before, uh, utilized Spacelab more than 20 times. It always worked without problem. And I think that was actually the ticket for us Europeans to join the club of those agencies who, at the end, started to work together building the ISS, the International Space Station. And from my point of view, without Spacelab, we would not be part of the, of the club. The fact that we have the Columbus module, which is from the dimensions very similar to the Spacelab module, 
I think that the prerequisite that we have it there is actually the Space Lab program. In this respect, I think it was a very good decision many, many decades ago to accept the U.S. invitation to make a contribution to what NASA calls the space transportation system. Of course, the most prominent and also most important element of the space transportation system is the shuttle as such. But with Spacelab, the shuttle was converted from a transportation system into a scientific tool, into a scientific platform. I knew that Ulf's career took place during the times of a divided Germany, but I wasn't really prepared to hear just how present this was in his experience. Clearly, his mission affected his view of the world, and he commented on the lack of visibility of borders from space, which a lot of astronauts comment on. But for someone who fled at such a young age across a highly contentious border, this must have really heightened his experience. That said, there are some borders that you can see from space. Yeah, the border between North Korea and South Korea, right? Yeah, I guess that also fits the theme as well for divided nations. It was particularly interesting to hear about Ulf's connection to Sigmund Yen, and even more so to realize that the pair were actually together at a conference in Saudi Arabia on the night that the Berlin Wall fell with Ulf going on to support Sigmund in obtaining a new role as advisor for ESA and the German Aerospace Center, DLR. Aha, so another unlikely friendship forged through spaceflight. That seems to be a bit of a running theme, and it stands testament to the way in which the challenges of space travel have brought nations together through the decades. It's particularly evident today, as we've just marked 20 years of continuous habitation of the International Space Station. Speaking of the International Space Station and today's missions, I find it really fascinating to look at the impact that Space Lab's shorter duration missions have had on the course of human spaceflight. Doran Pranaru, who we spoke to in an earlier episode who was part of the Intercosmos missions, he was in space for just eight days, and Ulf's first mission was only ten days. Today we've just become so accustomed to the idea of six and even nine-month space marathons. Right, and it's kind of obvious. As our technology and experience have evolved, humans have been able to live and work in low Earth orbit for longer and longer, to the point where we have had astronauts in orbit for up to and even over 12 months. That said, Ulf and his fellow crewmates had nothing but love for the Spacelab hardware, and clearly Alan and his colleagues did some great work. Absolutely. Spacelab and its components went on to play a part in 32 missions over 19 years, flying for the last time in the year 2000. The European-built Space Lab really did lay the foundations, breaking new ground for Europeans in space. So, we hope you enjoyed this episode. As mentioned, next month we move on to the International Space Station with a man of many titles. ESA astronaut, International Space Station program manager, the first European International Space Station commander, and the head of the European Astronaut Centre, Frank Devina. He also happens to be our boss. As always, you can find us on Twitter at ESA Spaceflight. Use the hashtag ESA Explores and let us know what you thought. Where you listen to us, consider rating and subscribing so we can reach even more space fans. Thanks for listening and stay tuned. <laughs>